Hello and welcome to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. On today's episode, I talk to young entrepreneur Francis Jones. Francis has been working on a fantastic way to support practical science for those students who have found it difficult to engage in mainstream education. Francis is a former science teacher who has taken what he has learned in schools and turned it into a solution that has widened access to science practicals. In this conversation, we hear how Francis' STEM at Home company is aiming to disrupt the science education system by changing where, when and how students carry out their GCSE practicals, whilst also maximising safety. So without further ado, let's hear Francis Jones' view from the lab. Hi Francis and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Cool and hi Andy and thanks again for inviting me on here to speak. That's all right, no problem. We've got lots of interesting things to talk about and as always on this podcast I like to talk about science to kick off. Why did you enjoy science as a younger person? So I ended up getting really into science mostly during my GCSEs because at the time I had a physics teacher who was so enthusiastic. Like before, you have science teachers who are very glum, making sure that science is not fun. But this was a teacher who made science accessible. He was enthusiastic. He was passionate about what he did. And in a way, that passion he had for science completely spread over to me because I'm the sort of person that really loves nerd culture and video games. And he would be the sort of person that try and explain stuff like momentum, gravity etc through the process of mario like you know super mario okay like you know doing classes like if mario jumped at this height would gravity cause his bones to break and then make go into like chemistry and biology and stuff like that and it's because of the fact that he was able to ground what he was teaching in a way that was suitable for someone like me made me absolutely adore science so it was all thanks to one amazing gcse teacher i had so it was all about all about physics. So what was your what was your experience of chemistry and biology? How were your chemistry and biology teachers? Were they were they also inspiring, but to a lesser degree? Yeah, I would I would totally say that. I mean, as you could probably tell, I'm a total chemistry specialist, and chemistry is my speciality. But it's just that physics teacher was the one who absolutely ignited why I love science. So you must have, um, did you go on to do all three sciences at A-level after you'd finished your GCSEs? So at A-levels, what I did were my A-levels in maths, chemistry, biology and physics. But then at the end of year 12, we had to drop one of our AS subjects. And unfortunately, I dropped physics because physics at A2 level is extremely difficult. So you gave, you gave it a message, you carried on and um, you went on to do quite an interesting university course, didn't you? Was it, was it um, something to do with criminology? Have I got that right? Oh, close. It was forensic science. You see, originally I always wanted to become a veterinary surgeon, but I started doing lots of work experience at loads of vet clinics and I started discovering that I was always sick every time I went to like any of my work experience. I ended up discovering later on I was severely allergic to most animals. So I had to completely pivot what I wanted to do at university. And forensics seemed absolutely interesting and ended up studying forensics at Nottingham Trent University. Brilliant. It's funny you should say your experience of, of veterinary science, because literally the last podcast I did, I had virtually exactly the same um uh, scenario my my previous guest said that they also wanted to do veterinary science so they weren't allergic but they but they said that they found when they did uh looked at the operations they couldn't stand the sight of blood or the kind of surgery aspect of it it's just interesting that that is 
of the, two two podcasts within the, in the week. And the, the, the two people have both said that. So obviously vet, that is a, a key hurdle for anyone kind of obviously looking into into veterinary science. Must be um you got to consider. I mean, it was really annoying because I I love animals a lot, and I had the grades, I had the work experience, and I'm not squeamish at all. But it was just being severely allergic at the time to like most animals with like you know with cat level fur and it's just there's no way I could become a vet if I was constantly sneezing and coughing throughout the entire time it was unpleasant just just during the work experience but imagine that during my actual career I would have survived I know it sounds it would be a rather rather big challenge definitely and I guess you kind of um you finished your, your criminology but I know that you went on to do um teaching in in, in China is, is that correct Yep, that's correct. So what happens were originally I did a work placement abroad in a pharmaceutical laboratory. And I realized that during my placement year, the laboratory lifestyle was not for me. It felt very claustrophobic, a lot more sit down. And then during my final year of my forensics degree, there was an option for a module about like teaching science at secondary school level. I ended up like doing that module and I absolutely just fell in love with teaching like being able to explain sorry abstract scientific concepts in a more energetic way made me realize you know what I want to get into teaching now so what happens after university I was like you know what I'm still young the wanderlust is still pop like you know you know when you're young and you still just want to go traveling all over I was like yeah, let's just go like work abroad for like a couple of years and end up teaching English for both two adults and nursery for a couple of years in Beijing. Okay, and how did you find um, living in Beijing? Was it a positive experience overall? What did you learn while you were there? It was definitely a very interesting experience. Like it's the best way to also learn the language is to immerse yourself within the actual culture itself and then become addicted to like online shopping and arguing a lot with your delivery drivers. But what happens that even though I really enjoy teaching over there, I noticed that teaching English as an additional language abroad, there wasn't really any set curriculum in place. There weren't really any guidelines in place. And it was like, I want to teach, but I want to make sure that what I'm teaching appeals to a identified pedagogy that we know will work so I was like you know what I want to teach I want to make sure my teaching pedagogy is good I want to make sure I teach you an actual full curriculum so just saw some targeted ads online saying hey you can get a big bursary for teaching for like you know becoming a trained chemistry or physics or maths teacher and I was like this sounds like a just 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 sounds like a good idea so ended up coming back started doing my PGCE in secondary education, specifically chemistry, and ended up getting into teaching in the UK. In terms of your teaching career, where did you start off geographically in the UK? Was it in London? So originally, I started teaching in a inner London school that was notoriously quite, how to describe it, rough, so to say. But what I ended up discovering with a lot of like the more challenging students was many of those students that many other teachers would consider to be challenging weren't actually, how to describe it, were not bad kids at all. If you sat down with them, if you talked to them on a one-on-one basis and showed them that science is for them, they started to feel accepted and they no longer started acting out in the classroom because I started noticing that a student would act out in the classroom if they felt that they didn't belong. And to many of them, they were like, oh, science is too difficult for me. 
oh, I'm just going to act out because I feel like I don't belong here. But when you break it down to them, you work one on one with them. Many of these students that were initially called challenging would be like, oh, I understand it now. Science is for me. And I realized that was the best way to engage with the students. Make sure that they understand it. Break it down in analogies that they would understand. And that's generally been my entire teaching pedagogy moving forward is to make sure that I explain concepts in a way that are as tailored towards the students as possible. And also, luckily, because I taught like a lot of teenage boys, teenage boys have certain fandoms like anime, Marvel and stuff like that. And because I'm also into those fandoms, it was very easy to start trying to explain these concepts to these kids. So if you start thinking about biology, because I always had to teach all three sciences, you start trying to talk about the resp- like the respiration system in GCSE biology, and a student would understand it. But then you understand, but then you find out later on that their favorite anime is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, and then you start using analogies from that anime to start explaining about breathing techniques, and they're like oh so it's just like in part two and then you're like yeah exactly and suddenly what was originally an abstract concept for the student they suddenly get and i just love that moment when they're like oh i get it now science isn't hard now that you've actually broken it down for me so similar to in a sense your own experience for your teacher talking about mario i guess is just like finding those those ideas that, that are concrete to them that kind of brings them into those abstract um kind of ideas within science is that would that would that, say, would that be true Oh, yeah, that's exactly true. That's the reason why I ended up making my current edtech business, STEM at Home, was because I just wanted to make sure that all of these abstract topics were understandable to students. Like, I do lots of tuition as well. And generally, the part of the curriculums that many students struggle with, even the top tier students, are questions involving the required practicals. And then I was like wondering, why do you not like questions about required practicals? A lot of it's like critical thinking. And they're like, it's very abstract to me. I don't get it. So I realized I had to try and make this fundamental concept of practical skills within science and boil it down to its absolute, like most absolute basics so they can understand it. And then we just expand upon it. So I was thinking, I mean, what, where do you think that, um, or why do you think that is in, in schools? I mean, obviously you've been a science teacher as well. Is, do you think there's not enough time as well for um, kind of immersion in, in practicals and it's kind of a bolt-on or it's just, you know, designed in a particular time and there's not enough time given to it? Why is it that the children that you're tutoring seem to be having these difficulties, do you think? So I ended up talking about this to a lot of my students, not only just the students I tutor, but also the students that I used to teach back in schools as well. And also, this also comes from a lot of experience working in school management. But the main reason why loads of students struggle with science practical and practical knowledge is just that they don't do enough practicals within schools themselves. Because as we all know, the workload on teachers is really increasing quite a bit. And the curriculum is just getting more and more narrow. So it's like we still have all this concept to teach, but we have less and less time to teach it. And then, you know, we start planning out stuff. It's like, okay, we teach subject topic A this week, topic B next week, topic C next week. But then you have stuff like, oh, here's something that's going to happen to disrupt it. Here's a school trip. These students are off sick. The C word that happened a few years ago. And also like sometimes Ofsted as well. And then you're like, oh, here comes a rent straight into everything. We're going to have to change it now. And then you start having less and less time, but you still have lots of correct, like content you need to cover before the exams. 
And then just the easiest thing to cut really are just the practicals because to do the practicals, you need to dedicate like an entire hour. You have to have all the setup, the technicians, make sure all the students are there, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe you can only do like one practical in a one hour block. Whereas in that one hour block, if you speed through, you can cover two different like concepts as well, and then just set them a worksheet. And it's like cutting practicals helps us save time, but it also means that the students don't develop those required practical skills that they need. And like science is hands-on. That's how we learn. That's how we grow as a species. It's just, we do stuff, we make stuff, we learn. So when you, um, when you talk about science practicals and, you, and you're looking at um, pain points in terms of your particular, you know, solution, solutions to that stem at home, where you're trying to solve, I suppose, a slightly different problem you're not, to, or are you solving the problem of kids not doing enough practicals at school so what was your what made you think that this might be a good path to go down in terms of practical science so originally it also kind of came down to necessity because in the school that I worked at we had quite challenging attendance issues so to speak so we always had to run loads of catch-up practicals for the students and it was like we have to make sure the students do these practicals so we could adhere to what the exam boards want and then you're like where am I going to fit this in? Just get to get the technicians in, get the science classroom, get everything in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it became just like an absolute challenge. And I would always have to struggle to try and put it together. What I then noticed during COVID were many students were still having to do questions based on their required science practicals. And you're like, how are these students going to know how to do these practicals if you know they're not in school so what means some of the other teachers technicians started trying to think was just like hmm is there a way we can get some of these equipment to the students but we do it in a nice safe way where they can kind of learn the fundamental basics from home but they still kind of get a little bit of the hands-on experience and there's not really any safety risk then you know the lockdowns all finished we went back to normal and i was like huh those boxes we had before really would have been extremely, extremely useful right now. So what I started doing was because I was doing my master's in STEM education at King's College London, I had access to lots and lots of science teachers, like not just teachers, but also management as well. So I started talking to them about it and they're like, yeah, that sort of thing would be quite useful. Then I started doing loads of market research with parents and many of them were saying, yeah, we would love for our students to be able to like do their science practicals outside of school because they can revise at home, but they can only revise their practicals in school. And sometimes the teachers don't have the time for them to actually do it. So I was like, huh, you know what? That's a good point. So I started developing testing STEM at home and that's where we are right now. So how did you, you said, so you went to your, um, so you did an MA or an MSc at the King's, King's College in, in STEM education, wasn't it? It was an MA, yes. MA. And um, did you do that while you were teaching or did you take a year out to do it? So funny story about it was one of my TLR roles in my old school was looking after the higher ability students. And I would help a lot of my students try and get into Russell Group universities and help them do like scholarship applications, personal statements, etc., etc. And what happened? One of my students said, oh, sir, all the advice you're giving us it only works in theory. It doesn't work in practice. And I was like, you know what, kid? 
I'm going to apply for this scholarship at King's College London, and I'm going to show you that the advice I'm giving you works. Then I ended up getting it, and they're like, oh, you're going to take it, right? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get my master's as well. Let's go to university so, you, so we both understand each other's pain together. So that's how I ended up getting like a scholarship to study at King's College London with my master's in STEM education. And it was originally a part-time degree. So I was learning while I was teaching. Wow. And does that kind of, I guess that inspired you even more, did it, to think about your, you know, your entrepreneurial um, ideas and, and, and making that, that into reality. Did that kind of, spur, say, spur you on and, and encourage you even more after you'd done that course? Oh, absolutely. So it was quite interesting was about one third of the way through the course, King's College London offers a lot of micro courses and they did a really interesting micro course on decelerating art and science. So rather than keeping like science and art as like two separate subject streams, it's about combining them together. So I was like, huh, you can use art to express stuff within science. So what happens was... I ended up producing a interactive art piece to show how unequal science education was in the UK and how like COVID like completely like high, like, you know, widened that attainment gap. And what turned from a interactive piece of art turned into an interactive software. And then that software, I ended up turning it into my first entre entrepreneurial endeavor which was a software for schools to maximize academic attainment for each pound spent by Alec by determining like, oh, this extra curricula would be quite good. We could use it to help these students. Oh, this extra curricula is quite good. We could use it to help these students while also balancing out their budgets. Okay. And is that something and you tried that within a few schools, did you or so we started trying it quite a bit, but what happened were we started trying to exit it and we realized like, oh, we kind of knew a bit more data behind it as well. So sold it for a bit and the money that I got from it, straight into STEM at home. Okay. And so you've, uh, so this is really your real, real passion project. And um, where are you of it now at the moment? Because you've, 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 you, you say you covered, um, so you, you cover the GCSE science practicals, don't you? Is that right? You've got, got something, a solution to each of those uh, science practicals. Yeah. Yep. The main ones. So currently right now, our current product suite covers nine out of the 28 required practicals in GCSE science. However, the issue about it is our sales have been increasing a lot more than expected because originally we were selling B2C directly to parents. But what happens were back in like autumn 2022, the cost of living increase happened. And we started noticing that our B2C sales of parents were horribly low. And then we started talking to parents and they're like, yeah, we would have bought this a few months ago. But now that our disposable income is pretty much gone, that's one of the things that we're probably going to cut. But then we started noticing that schools were buying our products. So we decided just to speak to the schools and ask, hey, we noticed you guys are buying quite a bit of our products. Why is that? And they were like, Oh, turns out your products in trying to make science practicals more accessible for our students to do outside of the classroom and with non-subject specialists. Yeah, turns out that was a massive pain point that we had. And 
your products are really helping us, especially with our students who are SEND, special educational needs. And I was like, oh, that's quite interesting to know. Because when I was doing my teacher training, one thing that was drilled into us very early on was to make sure that all of our materials all had certain structures in place to make it accessible to students with SEND. For example, a blue background, clear contrast in the text, bullet points, everything clearly structured, more understandable vocabulary. And I just ended up subconsciously putting all of this pedagogy to making my resources accessible straight into my STEM at home stuff. So we started realizing, oh, schools actually really like our products. So we completely pivoted towards from B to C towards B to B. However, ever since we shifted from B to C to B to B, business to business, we've been getting more orders than we initially expected. So rather than me working on the business into expanding our product suite, currently I'm more working in the business in sales, marketing, financing, orders, stuff like that as well. So if I seem like a little bit tired at the moment, we had a really big B2B contract and it's going to be delivered later on this week. So I was just finishing up the order, like packing everything, putting in the boxes, putting the invoices in, putting every, all the labels in a box like Fragile, Disray up. So yeah, we want to expand our product suite and that's the main reason why we're also looking for further funding at the moment. So I can hire more people to do a lot more of the admin stuff. And then I can finally get back to actually doing product development and making sure that we cover every single practical required for GCSE. Wow. So it says, yeah, I say you're very busy and um, so that sounds like things are going in the, in the right direction. And um, interesting that you're kind of, you, you're almost meeting a, a, a need that you didn't expect at the beginning, but um, that was quite interesting that kind of came about and you talked about, which I know is a, is a big problem in, you know, science teaching has always been, um uh hard to recruit for ever since i when i was a science teacher and uh, i know now is, is the same issue especially for those um subjects like physics for example um, and, and as you say there are more and more i'm hearing in schools um non-specialist teachers teaching science perhaps even you know maybe definitely at key stage three but sometimes moving up through the school so i guess you're um you're trying to solve that problem and the other thing that i think people don't always realize is um, i don't know what your experience of this is is technician support is not always easy to come by in schools i mean you might have been lucky in london i don't know but any any thoughts about technicians and, and the challenges schools have got um around that area of practical science oh yeah that was like a really big issue and it's not just like in my old schools but in like in so many other schools as well because the thing is to run a science practical what you need you need the subject specialist present you need to have the technicians all the setup make sure everything is like as clear as possible and then generally, if a student is requires an LSA, a learning support assistant, they're generally there as well. So you need all these multiple parties involved just to do a catch-up practical or practical in general. And that's part of the reason why I created STEM at home was I was like, okay, so based on my old school, you always had to make sure you started following certain health and safety procedures. But then you also had to start mitigating all the potential risks. But like, what can I do to minimize risk as much as possible, but still make sure that the students can still get the same experience and the same outcome out of it? And that's what gave my passion for STEM at home to try and like 
redesign the practical so the students can still do everything, but you've really minimized risk. So in terms of safety, because I know I spoke to you this on um, before I spoke to you on the podcast, um, how is how is that kind of um, accredited in a sense? Or do you, do you, what advice did you take or how can people be happy that, you know, the experiments that you're, you're, you're doing or your students will be doing are, are safe? Is it, is it just the, the guidance you're giving students? Can you tell us a bit about that? So in regards to the health and safety aspect, we make sure we look at all the information that is given to schools, for example, CLEEPS and then also cost rules as well to try and make sure, okay, would this be allowed in this situation? No. Would this be allowed in this situation? No. Would this be allowed? Okay, yes. It's like, for example, let's say you need to do a metal acid reaction practical. You wouldn't, like, if you have acid, it needs to be stored in a certain way. You wouldn't ship acid to a student, etc., etc. But what I started discovering was like, huh, let's try and do some testing and do some substitution. So we can't ship hydrochloric or sulfuric acid to students. Hmm, what about citric acid? Okay, citric acid works quite well with this practical, but where can I get citric acid from? Then I was in Tesco's, I was like, huh, concentrated lemon juice that does the exact same thing. So we started making sure that all of our practicals adheres to pretty much cleats, kosh, and then also like manufacture like guidelines as well to make sure they're safe to use at the home as possible. And then if like some stuff could it be used, we made sure we also followed other guidelines. For example, let's say we're trying to do GCSE biology qualitative reagent tests. What happens with stuff like burette solution is if it goes over a certain concentration, it kind of becomes a bit of a health hazard. But when it's diluted to a certain amount, it no longer is considered hazardous, but you can still use it to test for what you need to do in a qualitative reagent test. So there was also like a lot of trial and error involved as well. So I assume, obviously, mitigating any kind of, you know, um, obviously reducing the risks as much as you can. But I assume that um, the practicals are that you've got to be um, supervised by an adult, I suppose, at that teenage level. Would that be true? Generally, you don't legally need to be supervised by an adult. But I really just constantly say, yeah, you're going to be like, you know, you do need full adult supervision during this because... Yeah, that's good practice. Yeah, and it's so good to have a you know another a guiding guiding hand in terms of the instructions, as you say, especially if it's it's popular with SEND uh, children, it'd be really helpful for them to kind of go through the process and uh, um, have help while with an adult. So um, thinking about, so um, you're obviously kind of just early in this journey, really. What's what, what are your big plans for the next five years? Are you going to go international? Are you going to try and sort out the UK market first? And um, what are your your big ideas? Because you've got you've got really good imagination. So I assume you are kind of thinking ahead always, um, Francis. Ah, thank you. So currently, right now, I would say my initial goal was to fulfil this really really big B two B order that was in the triple digits. But that's all done. Transportation and shipping have been like organised, so we're quite good at that. And now we have a point two four percent market share after six months on the market. So yay, I'm happy about that. And then we do want to expand internationally, mostly Malta, Canada and Australia, because their GCSE curriculums are quite similar to the UK. So it means I won't need to do as much changes to our products in order to cater to those markets. We also want to, in the future, try and cater towards the A-level science market. I'm already like, you know, pulling my hair thinking, okay, this practical, 
How can I make it safe? Can't think of anything at the moment. So rather than me trying to go into another untapped market and capitalize on that, I don't want to do that until I can be completely sure that my products are as safe as possible. And that's why I don't have any immediate plans to go into like the key stage five A level market at the moment because I can't think of any way at the moment to make the key stage five A level camp like subject practical safe. Yeah, it's a bit more more challenge definitely when you get up to get up to sick form. So um, I wanted to ask you a final question about education generally. So you've had a, got a great experience. You've been, you've taught abroad. You've taught in the UK. You've taught in some challenging schools. You've been in middle leadership. You've been an entrepreneur. All these things, um, you know, all sort of education, all, a lot of it to do with science education. Um, what kind of things, if you were kind of uh, in charge of the education department, would you like to put in place, especially for science, you know, next five, ten years, um, to make things better for students? What would, you, what would you like to do? I mean, I would say, as someone that was also a teacher, just please stop putting so much pressure on teachers. Like, we all want to teach but there's just so much to cover and so little time. And we don't expect all those extra responsibilities to kind of like stop at any point. So if the curriculum and the content that we need to cover could just be let up like a little bit, like rather than have to cut, like cram in so much content into like a two year cycle, if there was just a bit less content. So rather than us trying to shove everything in at an accelerated rate, we could take our time with it, help the students learn and stuff like that. And that would really kind of, I guess, get students more engaged and, and, and less um, feel like they're being kind of fed science, I suppose, rather than experiencing science. So that's a really nice uh, point to end on. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up today, Francis? Oh, yeah. So if any of you are interested in seeing more about STEM at home, we've just started partnering with STEM Learning. I'm sure many listeners of this podcast will remember STEM Learning because we probably use a lot of their CPD and resources but they've just started exhibiting our products in their resource center, in the STEM Learning Center in York. So if you ever are having your CPD with STEM Learning at York, feel free to go to the resource center and see our products being displayed there, or maybe ask some of the technicians and they'll demo our products for you. Also, if you do want to know more about how STEM at home can help students in your school, we will be exhibiting at the TES Sense Show later on this year in the London Business Centre in October. So come over, come say hello, come see our products and talk about how STEM at home can really help a lot of your SEND students. Thank you very much, Francis. It's been lovely to speak to you and uh, best of luck with all your entrepreneurial um, ideas and uh, best, of, best of luck with STEM at, STEM at home. Thank you. Cool, thank you, mate. Thank you for listening to another episode of the View From The Lab podcast. It was nice to hear in this episode a different approach for learning practical science at home or in a different educational setting, and I wish Francis all the best in the future. Do you know anyone in the science education space who's making a positive change for learners across the country? Don't be shy, get in touch with me at andy.woods at pearson.com. I look forward to hearing from you and also joining me on next month's podcast. See you then.